Hello everyone, welcome to You, Me, Them, Everybody. My name is Brandon Weatherby. This episode with Lior Galil is all about, well, it's all about music because he is a music writer for the Chicago Reader and we talk about three of his most recent pieces. Uh, I wanted to reach out to Lior when I read his piece in uh, early April and uh, since then, uh, the pandemic has really changed the United States of America Probably not for the better. So we talk about uh, how the music scene, especially in Chicago, has been affected by it. Uh, we've also been affected by it, and that's why we now have a Patreon account. You could subscribe to uh, our podcast on iTunes and Spotify, and then you could donate to the podcast at youmethemeverybody.com or in the podcast description. Also in the podcast descriptions are the three stories of Lior's in the Chicago Reader that we discuss. Uh, here's Lior. Let's start where we start with most everyone. How are you holding up? Um, oh, okay, I guess. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's strange. I, I mean, I was already working from home before mm-hmm. this, uh, so kind of the 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 work time during the day is I don't want to say routine, but mm-hmm. um, it it doesn't feel terribly different, except for you know looking at what's happening in the world. Um, but not leaving my house as often as I used to is starting to, I mean, was getting to me and it's starting to get, get to me a little bit more now. Yeah. So I wanted to reach out to you when this pandemic first began, because I really enjoyed your piece about punk and donuts, but I don't even know if that, that was, I think compiled and assembled before the pandemic hit and then was published like right at the start. Do I have the timeline correct? Yeah. It, uh, it came out, at the beginning of April, I think April 9th or okay. something. It was, yeah, it was, it was one of the first week of April. Yeah. I got that assignment, uh, cause I pitched it in like February or something mm-hmm. and I got it in March. Like the, I think the last staff meeting we had was when I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll do this. Uh, <laughs> and then we just stopped meeting in person and I stopped seeing my coworkers. Um, I wanted to talk it. about it because I, like a lot of people really hate nostalgia because I think it holds people back, right? But you did a really great job of, of of showing the through line of how the past is the present and how this one little corner was extremely influential far beyond the city of Chicago, a lot of the suburbs actually. And it, you didn't grow up with it. I came way later. Even if it didn't affect you, it affected you uh, to this day. And I think that you did a really great job uh, showcasing that, how one specific landmark could influence 30 plus years of uh both a cultural scene and just like an architectural scene so right yeah i'm yeah oh, go ahead sorry <laughs> that reminded me of a of another recent piece you just wrote which was definitely in the time of coronavirus all about chicago, chicago punk was born queer and that w- i had no idea about most any of this how was the reception for these two pieces um, it was uh, people. People responded really strongly to both of them, particularly the Punk and Donuts piece. Uh, I think just in terms of that having been such a cultural landmark for as long as it was, uh, in in to a degree that a lot of people who just lived on the <laughs> lived lived in close proximity to it were aware of it and curious about it. I people kind of come out. Uh, come out from the woodwork to respond to that in a way that I hadn't seen for any of my stories in a little while. So that was kind of pleasantly shocking. Um, but the, the response to both of them was, was great. I mean, uh, the, uh, the queer Chicago punk was born queer story. I managed to get some people to talk to me about that 
simply because nobody had ever asked them about the relationship between queer bars and queer culture in Chicago and punk. And, you know, these are the people who uh, like Sparkle, uh, this gentleman who went by the name Sparkle, uh, who was a pretty, pretty uh, important player in the early punk scene. He was he was the one who got the idea to throw a, a punk night at this uh, bar, Lemire Vapeur, uh, and he never really talks about <laughs> about his past like this. But because I was specifically asking about queer culture and the influence of queer culture on punk, he was interested in talking. Um, so the, a lot of the people involved uh, from that time who who were queer or uh, or recognized the, the importance of queer culture in punk were pretty happy with it, uh, uh, which, you know, uh, that, that's not my primary goal. Mm-hmm. The, the goal is to capture the history as, as it exists and, 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 and what, you know, and trying to surface information that wasn't necessarily there before, wasn't evident before. But uh, it's always nice to know that uh, that my understanding of of what happened aligned with the you know aligned with the vision of, of people who experienced it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I I, I I heard a lot of nice things about both both stories. Is, is the short answer. And uh, you made me feel good about something because I was in a very negative headspace when it comes to uh, punk rock. Uh, because I'm living in Washington D.C. You're from here is that correct yeah yeah i grew up in bethesda exactly so we're flip-flopped i'm in dc i'm from chicago you're in chicago you're from dc i don't have this like wonderful attachment to washington dc and and when i think of the formation of punk rock i think of like um privileged kids that are throwing food not bomb shows with their heart is in the right place and they're on the right side of history and this is the opposite of that this is um not the yeah it is the opposite of that um uh, and that made me feel good that like punk is not one thing. I shouldn't be pigeonholed. I'm in the wrong. Clearly, I'm not saying that my perspective is the right one. But just you made me uh, learn about something I didn't know about, even though like I know a lot about Naked Ray Gun or something like that. Does that make sense? Yeah, it absolutely makes sense. Um, and and coming from like a a place with a storied scene where where kind of uh, I, it, it was a gift to to grow up in a place where. Uh, punk was unquestionably important to people who didn't understand it. Uh, and, and to be kind of a recipient of all this hard work of, of like generations of punks that came before me, like I could go to all ages shows. I never thought that that was a, a strange thing until I left the DC area. Yeah. Like I didn't realize that other places you had to be 18 to, to see a show that mm-hmm. didn't make sense. So, so one, like being a recipient of, of this like communal punk uh, energy that it, that existed before before I came of age uh, was influential in that way, and then like bouncing around after you know like after high school allowed me to to like get an get an understanding of how regional scenes uh, got an understanding and appreciation of regional scenes and how they're different and and what makes them special um, because those differences do make do make all these different uh, communities special and and makes I think the the fight to create places uh, where punk doesn't, isn't as welcome, uh, even more interesting to me. And all of that relates to your most recent piece, which is about the now and the future. Want live music back, wear a mask and call Congress. This is not a exhaustive history of a specific scene or a specific uh, corner. This is about 
the future of live music, which seems very perilous at this moment. And it ties to me, it ties to Chicago punk was born queer and the saga of punk and donuts, because for a long time, it seemed like there could never be a, uh, a queer night on uh, the 2100 block of Sheffield ever again, because of how expensive that, that place is and how punk and donuts is now a target because of the coronavirus, I think it's fair to say no one knows what venues will look like, when they will reopen, who could afford to even go to shows, let alone what acts will be touring through the city of Chicago. Yeah, not only that, but, you know, the, the infrastructure, the live music infrastructure in Chicago, it's it's uh, remarkably independent. Like so many of these spaces are run by people without ties to Live Nation. Mm-hmm. They're not run by corporations. They're, you know, it's existed for so long uh, in 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 this way that like right now there is uh, a, you know, there's the super development, the Lincoln Yard super development um, that's sort of on the border of Wicker Park and Lincoln Park uh, that Live Nation has uh, a role in building this development that got tip money and the original plan called called for three to five Live Nation run and owned venues, which is terrifying because they don't have any role in in the city's live music culture in the way that they do in other places. And so one of the scary things about this is like, yeah, a lot of, you know, 90% of independent venues are expected to close if they don't get the, uh, if they don't get the, the proper uh, break, breaks from, you know, from the federal government. Uh, yeah. How, how are places that have to pay taxes and are unable to make a profit right now going to exist? Um, that entire, you know, like the Metro smart bar G man, those mm-hmm. are run by somebody who went to queer spaces in Chicago. Like the Joe Shanahan was informed by Lemire by pair and by the warehouse, uh, and, uh, you know, when I was working on the on this story, when I was interviewing people, I interviewed Joe, but I also interviewed um, Coleman Bryce, who runs Coles, which is like the kind of identifying uh, Logan Square bar uh, right now. And he's just like, I can't imagine the city without Metro. Like the the, the, the threat to the future of these places is very real right now. Um, and I yeah, I really worry <laughs> about what could what could happen if they don't get the support they need let's if you're willing to just guess <laughs> uh, I have a theory that the only places that are going to reopen are the ones that are owned by the booker that uh, unless you already own the property there's absolutely no incentive to try to make this work as a venue so like I think Beat Kitchen and Subterranean you speak to them they don't own the building they, they're renting for like 20 grand a month or something like that where Mike Reed he owns the Hungry Brain that will probably reopen what do you think is going to happen yeah, I mean, the, the it's. I think we're we're gonna get. I don't think ninety percent of local venues in Chicago are going to close just because, in some cases, they are. Yeah, they are owned by the people who are operating them, or they're nonprofits. Like Constellation is a nonprofit. Uh, Experimental Sound Sound Studio is a nonprofit. There there are these smaller pockets where there isn't that much of a of. I don't want to say there's not that much of a threat, but they there are. Um, uh, safety nets for them that, that don't exist elsewhere. But yeah, it does. It does. I can I can see some of these other venues absolutely shutting down soon. I mean, there have been a couple that have already closed, which are the ones that I there. You know, there was Crown Liquors. Yeah, was the first venue to go in Chicago. I would have expected that place to continue because they can operate like it, it was a it, it was a liquor store too. They they 
totally could have continued to sell uh, alcohol during uh, during this time. I don't understand why that closed, but yeah, it's going to be a lot of places uh, that aren't that aren't owned by people who care about music that are going to, unfortunately going to end up closing down. I do worry about subterranean considering mm-hmm. Wicker Park, the the shape of Wicker Park right now. The... Double door didn't turn turn double door turned into a Yeti not too long ago. Yeah. I I fear that something similar could happen. So one of the more interesting uh, venues is Fitzgerald. Fitzgerald is in Berwyn, Illinois, just outside of the city. Uh, and for those of you that don't know, the way Chicago is mapped, it's sort of um, like a W in some parts where um, if it was a straight line, that would be part of the city. It doesn't matter. The point is it's very close to the city. They're doing these like pickup truck concerts with the Waco Brothers, and that sounds like a really neat, fu- not just with the Waco Brothers, it started with the Waco Brothers, a very neat idea but something that the novelty might wear off quite quickly. Uh, what do you think of Fitzgerald's futures? Uh, the, my biggest concern with them and with these other venues that are trying out, you know, outdoor concerts, it's obviously, it's like the winter. Like that's, yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know, uh, we're going to get, we're going to get to a point where just like doing that is not even remotely possible. Um, and so I think it'll be interesting. Uh, will, uh, will who purchased Fitzgerald's, officially 10 days before the pandemic oh, set man. in uh yes yes uh yeah fitzgerald's was family owned for almost 50 years and he uh he took over the property it took about 18 months he said to to formalize everything and then suddenly this happened he's like he uh talking to him he was energized by the ideas that they've been coming up with to provide alternative meaningful alternative programming beyond just live streaming during this time. But I, yeah, I, I absolutely worry about winter because no musician is going to want to sit on the back of a pickup truck mm-hmm. that's driving through, you know, subterranean temperatures yeah, geez. <laughs> uh, to, to play a guitar to people who aren't going to want to be outside to listen. Um, so that, that more than, than kind of the novelty uh, is going to, is, is going to be the biggest factor because I think people particularly in, you know, in neighborhoods where there aren't a lot of live music options are are gonna still gonna be interested in hearing and experiencing music and, and having some sort of human touch yeah. <laughs> outside of outside of their own homes. But yeah, those opportunities are gonna shift dramatically very soon and uh that's concerning. The issue with all this the sort of the unspoken issue is will people even go out? will they feel comfortable and I I clearly have no idea, but my guess is Chicago's a very liberal city. It went like 92% blue in the 2016 election, and because this been, has been so politicized, it's difficult to imagine, even if you can go to a sold-out show at Metro, that you would feel safe enough to go to a sold-out show at Metro. H- have any of the owners just talked about the... I mean, I guess the hideout would be the best example of, like, we're not opening till January, let's not even talk about it, but has any venue just said, like, we're not doing anything until there's a cure. Yeah. Yeah. Several, several of the people I talked to were just like, we're, we're stage five and stage five or phase five, phase five is there's a cure. Like that's, that's unquestionably going to be when we open. Um, Yeah. A lot of, a lot of the owners and and operators that I talked to are doing uh, programming that doesn't involve gathering people in any needs because they just, they still don't, they're, they're not going to feel comfortable until they're, they're, is uh, a vaccine, and I don't, I don't blame them for that. I also don't, feel, I also don't feel comfortable going anywhere until that happens. Um, you know, which January is uh, is hopeful. Oh yeah, that's <laughs> um, wishful thinking. Uh, yeah. 
Yeah, you, it's it it is. Do you Sorry, enjoy? Have you enjoyed any live streams or Zoom shows? Sometimes I okay. I really haven't been watching that many. To be honest, um, it uh, it it often just makes me sad. Um, yeah. Not not to say that the performances aren't aren't great, um, but it just makes me wish that I was there. Um, and I don't, I, what I love about live music is that I don't feel this isn't the only thing, but going to a show, I don't feel like I'm a passive observer. Um, I mean, I do feel like I'm an observer, but in a completely different way than going to the, going to the movies, which is, uh, or, or going to live theater, like the all, and none of these things can be replicated at home meaningfully. Watching a movie at home still isn't the same as going to a movie theater. Um, uh, which is, I'm, I'm also really missing going to the movie theaters. I love being able to shut off my phone and be around strangers and friends to experience this art together. Um, so uh, yeah, I've been watching some some live streams. Uh, I, against my better judgment, tuned into some of the Wall of Blue stuff just because I, you know, I care about the performer, mm-hmm. the, the few local performers who got like three minutes apiece. You, you know, like I wanted to see them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and and it was it was fun to see them, but um, yeah, it's just hard. It's uh, it's I would rather watch you know, a documentary about a musician that I love or, or watch old concert footage than necessarily watch something that reminds me that I'm unable to go and see those musicians in person. <laughs> Has there been any chat about potentially doing like a uh, Lollapalooza or Ride Fest or Pitchfork, uh, a socially distanced version in 2021, if there is not yet a cure, like we're doing uh, like a drive-in version of it where... Yeah, like a drive-in version of it. Has that come up yet? Um, not that I've heard of. I heard a I heard a rumor that you know Pitchfork was trying to do something this year, but but you know that didn't pan out clearly. Mm-hmm. I mean, Riot Fest, Riot Fest took the route of uh, of already announcing the, you know the the first crop of acts for 2021, which. Yeah. Again, that is uh, uh, that that is wishful thinking. Um, I mean, it'd be it'd be great, and it seems like it takes what eighteen months on average to to get a vaccine for this. But like, um, yeah, who knows? Uh, that's that that seems like a real risk to have already announced it <laughs> at this point. Um, uh, but that that lineup looked great. Uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, uh, Lollapalooza is connected to live nation and live nation has been testing out drive-in concerts. So it wouldn't surprise me if, if that is something that they're already tinkering with for next year, just as a backup plan. Um, but there, I mean, <laughs> there was that memo about, about their, uh, their updated contracts that leaked to Rolling Stone and billboard recently that had some insane clauses in it about artist fees and, uh, artists owing back like twice their original fee if they cancel a performance uh there's there's just like a lot of a lot of bad juju going on over there is any of the people you talk to which is do you which do you think will be the most successful um in terms of what like they're currently doing well because some of them are like metro is like we're not opening hideouts like we're not opening but a handful of them are doing these small right. concerts or a live stream of those who do you think will be uh, standing tall in a year from now? I don't, I don't know because I don't. 
you know, I think Fitzgerald is, is proven good at this, but uh, I think they're probably, you know, I would, I would wager to say that these are, these, these are more uh, gestures of kindness to the, you know, to the people who show up and they are like a really stable sources of income. Uh, and that is so key in getting people to just continue to give in, in other ways. I think uh, should any of these places in the next week say we are we're, we might have to close in a week. That's when, you know, Chicagoans are going to throw a lot of money their way to just yeah. be like, here you go. Don't, you know, don't close. I think all at once it was, you know, when all these venues started canceling shows March 12th and 13th and 14th and 15th, it was just like a lot to take in. But a lot of those, uh, a lot of them launched fundraisers to cover expenses, to cover, uh, <laughs> to, to cover, staffers uh while they couldn't work theoretically for at the time you know we were all just predicting two weeks but uh now that now that it's not so much of a everyone is scrambling to cover their asses kind of thing i i imagine that if you know if a beat kitchen were to be like hey we might have to close in a week unless we get unless you know you can support us now with this you know a relatively smaller amount of money uh you're going to get a saint vitus style um uh get back where you know when saint vitus closed for the pandemic i think they uh they raised five times as much money as they needed to kind of cover the venue while uh, for you know however many months they were asking for it like that uh i think the 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 desire to keep these spaces open in this city is strong enough to hopefully um uh, help them <laughs> should 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 that threat kind of actually come to come to bear. I want you to be right. Me too. Yeah, <laughs> I, I say that. I say, uh, yeah, I say that also as <laughs> as somebody who really wants that wants that to to be true. But I just from the from the outpouring of support for all these places during the initial clo- closure when. So many people are also losing their jobs too. It was uh, was really moving uh, as somebody who's just who just goes to <laughs> goes to these places to see shows. Um, yeah. uh, it's just hard being in a position as uh, you know as as an attendee, being like I can't give enough money to to sustain this place. Like the that that is kind of the hardest thing that, that I think is all of us who love live music are dealing with. Is like the only thing the 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 strongest option we have is to call our representatives and at this moment <laughs> when they're already dealing with so many other things and and when uh, our gov- our federal government was already in shambles it just it it does feel hard and uh i don't want to say hopeless but it's just like what what can we it, i wish there was another option for us to to pursue in addition to you know asking our representatives to to save these places let's end on a somewhat more positive potentially more positive uh, note, this pandemic is clearly changing the way bands and artists could even rehearse. Do you think there'll be any specific genre that will benefit from this? Any specific type of performer that will have a, a brand new uh, presentation? Something that to look forward to because of the pandemic? Um, I, I think musicians who have already figured out how to record on their own, uh, record, mix, master, do, you know, do whatever percentage of the labor themselves uh 
and regardless of the genre, are you're you're already seeing starting to see that payoff. I mean, one of my one of my favorite musicians around here for years has been not the Okbanaya, who now performs under his first name, um, and he put out an album at the beginning of the pandemic that you know it should have been the beginning of a big successful you know nation, nationwide tour for him. And since then, he's released <laughs> he's released two EPs, I want to say, and uh, an album like all the stuff recorded during during the pandemic in response, partly in, in response to what was going around. And the last album that he put out was like a, uh, an orchestral, <laughs> uh, album, uh, like math rock album that, uh, he performed almost everything on it. And he, yeah, he recorded that himself with the exception of like a, um, a harp player that he got in and a couple others, like all of that was his. And he's somebody who already plays around with genre a lot. So it's less genre and more like, how uh how confident are you in your ability to do all this on your own or to to work with your collaborators in a in a meaningful way and yeah we're we're already starting to see a lot of that happen now in part because some of these musicians had been fully reliant on on you know touring income uh and are now able to kind of express their need to make money off of their music in a more tangible way than streaming allows. Uh, they're, they're able to tell people that a little, a little more clearly. And I think are being heard. Um, I think band the artists, artists who rely on Bandcamp a little more than, than Spotify and streaming services are, are starting to um, not uh, cancel out the, you know, the, the, the strange fractions yeah. of, payouts for streaming that that uh that they're that they're getting but i think they're the uh there are more people who are interested in hearing what they have to say and interested in, in supporting them through purchasing downloads versus streaming Bjorn, thank you for doing this keep up the good work i really enjoy reading your stuff in the chicago reader which is clearly going through a boom time everything's going really well there uh people don't need to thank worry you. about the financial stability of the reader it'll always be around because all weeklies are also built to last pandemics won't affect them in any negative way uh, it's a great time to be a, <laughs> uh, a music journalist <laughs> yeah it's uh it's it's a fascinating time but uh i'm, I'm glad i i'm glad i get to write <laughs> um, and thank you so much for having me on <laughs> you're one of the few that gets paid to do it so i'm fingers crossed it'll last at least through the pandemic me too <laughs> i got i got my fingers crossed too.